This is Tech Refactored Double Plus, where we have discussions that get into rich detail with authors about their research. I'm Gus Hurwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska. Last spring, we supported several research projects conducted by academics who are active in this area of research. Presentation of these projects was ultimately delayed by COVID-19. Instead of the roundtable discussion that we had planned to hold together in person last April, we met virtually this October to discuss this research. That discussion has been cut down for this podcast and will be presented in a series of episodes over the coming weeks as part of the Tech Refactored Double Plus series. These episodes will include short presentations from the authors and Q&A from other project participants. The Rural Digital Divide, which refers to the challenges of connecting everyone in rural America to the internet and the opportunities that it affords, is one of the most pressing and difficult to solve public policy issues in America today. Our center's ongoing work brings together experts from around the country that have been involved in digital divide policy. One area of focus for our center is bringing together experts from around the country who have been working on digital divide policy for many years to discuss the challenges and potential solutions to this problem. Through a series of roundtables and student opportunities, we capitalize on our location in rural America and our regional relationships with internet service providers, regulators, and users, both big and small, to explore this issue. Up first, we asked all of our authors to pre-record a short discussion of their research that could be shared with all of the roundtable participants before they came together in October. We will start by sharing the presentation recorded by Matt Larson and David Reed, discussing their research on the cost of broadband in rural America, a case study of best fit broadband. Matt Larson is the chief executive officer of VistaBeam Internet in Garing, Nebraska. David Reed is a scholar in residence at the Technology, Cybersecurity, and Policy Program and a senior fellow at the Silicon Flatirons Program at the University of Colorado Boulder. After listening to their pre-recorded presentation, we will then turn to a discussion about their research that was recorded with Matt and David along with the rest of the participants of the roundtable. And the problem that we wanted to look at here is what does it cost to deploy broadband to all households in what we call ultra-rural settings, all right? So um, by all households, we mean actually all the households in a, a particular area and not just serving, say, 80% of the households. And by ultra-rural, it means it has very low uh, population density, below uh, one um, individual per uh, square mile. And this, of course, has, has increasing importance due to the need to address the digital divide and homework gaps that we have seen uh, pop up in the last year due to, um, and due to the uh, pandemic. And so um, our approach is to develop a cost model that will estimate the cost of broadband deployment in Banner County, Nebraska. So this is a case study focused only on Banner County that has this um, characteristics of an ultra-rural setting. And we're going to consider two end cases for um, broadband technology options to deploy. And both of them are important and are wide use today in rural settings. So 
One is fixed wireless access, or FWA, um, that, um, as you will see in, in our paper, allows for what we call a best fit deployment for up to 100 megabits per second uh, broadband service, and a fiber to the home option, which is more one size fits all that can deliver up to one gigabits per second. So the novelty here of this paper is that it's rare to model broadband costs in the most challenging rural environment. So costs are higher. Typically you'll see if they're publicly available costs, they're in, in areas where the cost is much less. But these are challenging um, circumstances here in uh, Banner County. And, it, and they're made express, especially challenging given that we're connecting all 100% of households in the, the county. So uh, a quick summary then of our findings. Um, and to, to summarize them in one sentence is this best fit approach uh, that you can use with uh, wireless technology, uh, as you'll see, allows for the most timely and efficient expenditure of government support that is coming in order to um, address the challenges of the digital divide. Now, this is a, a case study of one county, so I would caution that we, are, we can't broadly extrapolate, extrapolate the findings here to all areas, even in, in rural settings. And we would need to do more study um, of, of other uh, rural uh, areas to get a more complete uh, analysis. So these are some insights that we have gained based upon this single case study, but there are limitations on the extrapolation. So given that we've constructed a cost model, Matt's going to give a, a brief summary of what we've learned, of some of the insights from a technology and economics perspective uh, based upon the results of our uh, cost model. So Matt? So one of the things that's uh, especially useful for Banner County is uh, the fact it's very well suited for, for fixed wireless. Uh, there aren't a lot, isn't a lot of tree cover and it's relatively flat with a few high spots. So it's a, it's a good, good conditions there for that. It's actually mostly favorable conditions for fiber other than density because there are poles available. So it could be done with aerial or it could be done with uh, plowing into the ground. So those two things are generally favorable compared to a lot of other places in rural America. But uh, it's definitely easier to build fixed wireless in this kind of a situation. Uh, you, can, uh, you have a lot of flexibility on where towers can be placed. Uh, it's generally fairly easy to get right away and to find access to high points that can be used to deliver to uh, some different areas. Uh, and uh, using fiber, uh, you've got access to, to roadway and uh, poles, which makes it fairly simple, but the cost is still fairly high. Uh, the fiber of the home is an order of magnitude faster in speed. We're talking about one gig down, one gig up, uh, compared to uh, 100 down and, and 10 to 20 up with fixed wireless, but the cost is also an order of magnitude higher. Uh, in the paper, we came up with right around $4,000 to do fixed wireless and over $40,000 per location to deliver fiber. Um, one other factor in here, the demand for broadband by users in rural areas, users everywhere, tends to run anywhere from 10 to one to 13 to one in favor of download speed versus upload speed. So even with all the reports of people needing additional upload speed uh, after the pandemic, uh, empirical data still shows that we're looking at way more download than we are upload. 
Uh, the performance of fixed wireless is keeping up with the FCC broadband definition and demand by users. And uh, although the cost model shows that there's probably going to be limited competition here, uh, but it's in order to get to those last few households, really the only cost effective solution is going to be fixed wireless. All right. Thank you, Matt. And then the uh, policy implications um, that um, we have based upon the analysis is that you know, because uh, the broadband has become what we call a universal service, so the government is trying to subsidize its deployment to all uh, households throughout the country, they're offering subsidies to do this. And what our uh, modeling shows here uh, that's interesting and, and, and is generally applicable given our experience um, with the cost of deploying broadband networks is that you can have a very wide variation in the cost and capabilities of the broadband access technologies. And so the FCC as a result uh, needs to establish a, a clear statement for the definition of their broadband. If you have a universal service for something, you have to define exactly what you mean um, uh, for the characteristics and features of that service that will be deployed to uh, all households. And because there's a wide variation in these technologies, then uh, an efficient uh, approach would be to allow the service providers flexibility in how they can meet the requirements um, using different approaches. And this is uh, from a policy perspective, the principle of technology neutrality uh, that allows for often the most uh, efficient and effective solutions to be um, implemented when uh, those who are receiving this, the, the subsidy uh, are given this um, flexibility to uh, make decisions on how they, uh, what technologies they would deploy in order to meet uh, and build a network that would, that would meet the FCC's definition of broadband. And so the good news here is that the FCC appears to be moving in the right direction. We now turn to the discussion about this research that was recorded with Matt and David, along with other authors presenting their own research at our October Roundtable. In talking to uh, Matt, he's got great experience with his ISP, as, as Gus was talking about it, deploying in kind of these ultra-rural settings where the... Uh, you know, you, you have a population density less than one person per square kilometer. And typically when you see the costs for broadband, they're focused on cities, like we're talking about Muni broadband, that's usually a city of three, 4,000 uh, people. It's not typically focused on connecting every single home <laughs> in an area to broadband. And if you look at what Chairman Pai and the FCC has been focusing on, with um, the RDOF approach is really connecting the, trying to get to full universal service uh, capacity. And so we uh, had the opportunity in talking to Matt, he knows uh, a lot about Banner County in Nebraska, and um, it fits this definition of ultra rural. And we wanted to estimate the cost of connecting every household. Right? And I have to emphasize that that really, you know, most of the numbers you're seeing is somebody is, is deploying, but they're focused on where, like in, in, uh, uh, in, in Banner County, there's kind of an unincorporated city, Harrisburg, and they're kind of fo 
focused in that area and they'll let lead that ranch that's back up the the, the road uh, a couple kilometers out of their cost calculation and so we tried to add it all up and so the novelty here is looking at it from the perspective of connecting uh, every household and, and um, I'm going to have Matt here go through uh, a little bit of what's what it's like to be on those front lines. Sure. So I grew up on a ranch uh, and spent a lot of time out there. So these, these are my people that are out there that, you know, don't have access to service. And uh, when I started my business, one of the things that I wanted to do was try and figure out a way to get out to these people that previously didn't have any way to get service. And Banner County is just like this perfect example of a place that would typically be left behind. They've had uh, some low speed DSL in a very small part of the county. Uh, there is fiber that goes through right through the middle of the county that nobody really has access to, uh, except for CenturyLink, which is the incumbent. And that's you know part, part of the issue that we've had. So uh, I've been doing fixed wireless since 1999. So I've got a little over 20 years experience with it. And I've seen it grow from, you know, when we started, we were just putting outdoor antennas on indoor radios and it was a giant science experiment, but the equipment's really evolved. And we're at the point where the latest generation of gear is perfectly capable of offering 100 meg down, 10 to 20 meg upload speeds. And what I wanted to do as part of this paper was to kind of look, Banner County was great because they gave us the we actually have the GPS coordinates for every house, every location within the county. And there's some places where it's really hard to get that, especially in rural. So uh, because geocoding uh, facilities generally don't work in a lot of rural areas. So we had really good background data on that. We have some existing infrastructure in the county. We had received a Nebraska Internet Enhancement Fund grant back in 2008. And we put a couple of towers uh, going through Banner County to start providing service and had some success putting people on the earlier generation of fixed wireless. And right, kind of we're at the point where we had already started putting a design together to see what's the next step. So it was very easy to kind of take our design that we had started on and just extend it out to everyone. And it's a, it's a very different kind of deployment model with fixed wireless. Uh, in a lot of ways, uh, some of the biggest advantages are, are kind of a regulatory bypass. Uh, we don't have to deal with right away uh, we don't have to deal with a lot of things that really hold up fiber uh, network construction and permitting and stuff like that. If we can find uh, uh, adequate high spot or a tower, we can go ahead and deploy service and we can set it up in a way that we don't have to run a fiber past every person. We just have to put equipment on a tower that's going to be within reception range for the end user. So we have stuff on top of uh, the first site we put up was just a pole stuck in the ground on top of the tallest hill in Banner County uh, with solar panels attached to it and pointing to two different towers to get its internet feed. Uh, we're on a couple of regular towers. Um, it's, it's, been a, it's been kind of a figure out how to do things and really work with the neighbors a lot. We've gotten a lot of input from people that live in Banner County. They're like, hey, I've got a high spot over here. I know this guy. And you know, we're at the point where I think we have six sites in the county. Uh, we received a CARES Act grant from state of Nebraska that is going to pay for backbone upgrades. It's basically going to cover about uh, a fourth of the, the proposed infrastructure construction that we had in our paper. They're building a tower right now that should be done uh, sometime in November, and we're going to add enough capacity to put uh, another 125 people on 
with hundred meg service. So that's that's kind of what we've been dealing with. Uh, it's not from an economic point of view. If we weren't using fixed wireless, there'd be no way to build uh, a sustainable economic model to try and deliver broadband in this area. So most of the, as as David said, most of the uh, talk about trying to do broadband uh, revolves. It's very, very fiber centric. And I thought it was really important to kind of point out that there are some alternatives to fiber that make a lot more economic sense and are capable of delivering an adequate level of service in a lot of places. Okay, David, Matt, uh, thank you both. Uh, we're going to start with uh, Sarah O, oh, then go to uh, uh, Brent Skorup. Uh, Sarah, turning to you for the first question. Great. Um, I really enjoyed reading your paper. I learned a lot that I didn't know um, before. And I wondered um, if there are other papers or reports that measure the cost, um, I guess, cutoff between fixed wireless and fiber to the home. So in your case, um, you're talking about Banner County, which is one house per square mile. Um, is there like a magic number where it, it shifts like in cost efficiency from fiber to the home to fixed wireless? Is that is it like 10 houses per square mile or like 30 houses per square mile? Like when, where is that like urban rural cutoff. I mean, there is a line for Census Bureau me measurement purposes. And I think there also is like um, that kind of cutoff for RDOF um, between urban and rural areas. But I just wondered in your experience, like is it cost effective um, at a certain level of rurality, <laughs> ruralness? So uh, it's a great question, Sarah. And if you if you actually know some sources, maybe that you're thinking about that we should look at, please let us know. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll I'll cover this quickly, and then Matt, you can jump in as well. Since uh, uh, it, it, as I I said a little bit earlier, there is no uh, one met cost uh, or metric proven point for a particular technology in a particular place because it really is specialized. And you know, uh, when you're burying fiber, for example, if you if it's uh, sandy soil, you can go through, and it's a lot uh, more inexpensive than if you have a lot of rocks. Or in, in a fixed wireless perspective, if there's a lot of hills and trees, it's going to be different than if it's flat and open, and and you don't have those obstructions. So, it's very difficult to um, identify a specific proven point for a technology versus another technology. I will tell you, working with the cable industry for a while when I was at Cable Labs, a lot of the uh, major cable companies at, at that time would, would have basically a, a metric of, we're not going to even be interested in, in, in an area that had you know less than, uh, say, 30 homes per mile on, on the plant or something like that. They did have some rough uh, cutoffs that uh, led to frustrations sometimes with customers that were just right on the border there. Um, but, but that's the problem is we don't, you, you, it really is customized and how like the, the RDOF with the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund makes, identifies area is in part based upon this imperfect 477 process <laughs> that uh, it's looking at where those areas that appear to not be served, it doesn't, you know, there's no 
specific uh, authentication mechanism associated with those reports. And so they'll look at where somebody is not, you know, where there's no uh, census blocks that are reporting anybody and say, okay, we're going to auction these off. Right. And, and, uh, um, and that's in itself not exactly perfect because as Matt was talking about earlier, some of the small ISPs, they're there for a different reason. They're just, you know, they're a little bit like the internet societies, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of bottom-up approach for community networks. So some of these guys are just out there just, you know, trying to provide uh, connectivity. And, and, and so they're less... Um, even aware that they have to file that that they're providing that service, so um, it it it's a, a it, it's very difficult to to characterize things in one fashion. Uh, Matt, do you want to add some more to that? Yeah, I mean, I'd throw in that density isn't always the key consideration. Um, one of the most important considerations for doing fiber networks is having to have that right away, and if there's only certain companies that are going to have access to that uh, in an easy way, uh, it's very hard for other companies to break in and get that. So that's there to, to a lot of us. I, I just considered fiber was just out of reach. So I'm just going to focus on wireless because I, I at least have a lot of flexibility in what I can do with that. Also got situations where uh, even if the density is there and even if the right of way access is there, it still makes more sense to do wireless to start with. Um, I can give you an example, like Chapel, Nebraska, uh, had an abandoned cable system that we bought. So we actually have pole attachment rights, and we could put fiber up, but we're putting wireless up right now because it's easier to deploy and less expensive. Um, fiber is very capital intensive. You know, we'd have to spend probably, you know, close to a million dollars to put fiber into that town, and it doesn't necessarily make a substantial improvement for the people that are there and definitely doesn't make any improvement to our bottom line. So uh, those, those are some of the alternatives. I think eventually we will put fiber in there, but uh, I'm hoping to do it after we've got uh, some experience, after we've built up some, uh, some cash flow from the existing customers and we start to see people that need more. There's also a lot of other, other technologies too. We're also working with millimeter wave fixed wireless, which is capable of doing gigabit speeds. So uh, if I can put up gigabit, fixed wireless uh, for 10% of the cost of doing fiber, I'm probably going to do that until it reaches a point where it's not scalable. And so far, we haven't come across many situations where wireless wasn't, fixed wireless wasn't scalable enough to meet the needs of the people we're working with. So, and if I could add one point that's kind of exciting about this from my perspective, having done research in the broadband space, I always like to see facilities-based competition, right? That's what we like to see. And, uh, you know that we can't make generalizations based upon a case study in one county in the country, but you know just within this county in various parts, there are like you know three different ISPs, four different ISPs uh, with you know including um, all of the, the 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 companies we know are in this area. Now, the problem with fixed wireless is um, it, it it is based upon the the topology of the coverage within your your uh, cell site and that's hard to map exactly to the households that 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 um, uh, can be served by that company but it is very interesting and i'm very excited with all the spectrum that's now be being rolled out uh, as part of the 5g fast plan of the fcc that can be used for mobile broadband along with both unlicensed and unlicensed 
you're seeing now an unprecedented amount of spectrum out there. And this, <laughs> Matt can tell, he, he is probably, you're competitive in every space you're in, right? <laughs> and, yeah. and so that's just going to increase with the increasing availability of the spectrum. And that's something to research and look forward here that the, even though there are fixed costs with these systems, my sense is, uh, my, my, my hypothesis that I would like to do some more research on is maybe we can get more facilities-based uh, competition than we think, and maybe there's a sweet spot that's more towards lower density areas because the fixed wireless is, that's where its sweet spot is, then, you know, it's, it's tough to, you know, within a very dense urban area to put in a fixed wireless because of all the sharing, you have to get a lot of cell sites and those are more expensive. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think, Matt, you do have a lot of competition out there, right? Yeah, we do have a lot of competition. Uh, there are multiple fixed wireless providers across my footprint, probably, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 17 other competitors in a lot of the areas that I'm at. And, you know, one of the biggest issues we run into is, is limited spectrum, but as David said, that's that's become a lot more. Uh, that's there, there's a lot more spectrum coming out. Uh, they just recently opened up almost another thousand megahertz of unlicensed spectrum in six gigahertz. It's going to be shared using a spectrum access system, which means uh, it's going to be it's going to be shared between multiple carriers. It used to be that uh, you know Department of Defense had this chunk and nobody could use it. So like CBRS spectrum was for the military and they decided to open up and make it so uh, people in the middle of the country can use it because it's used for basically naval radar. So on the coast, it's not available in the middle of the country, it's available. So now they're making a big chunk of six gigahertz. And what I think is awesome about that is a lot of the equipment we have right now will work in that spectrum. It just needs a firmware upgrade. And that's really exciting to me because stuff like TV white space is stuff that's been talked about for 15 years and nobody's come up with any equipment that's actually feasible that delivers the speed that people want at a cost that people are willing to pay. And we are now going to have this huge chunk of spectrum to where when 60 gig is opened up, there is the legitimate possibility of gigabit speed fixed wireless because we'll be able to do much larger channels and offer it over a much larger footprint than we can right now. Like the millimeter wave, we can we can do gigabit with that, but it's typically limited to within half a mile. So it's gonna be for like really dense applications, very short distance. But the new stuff that's gonna be available is incredible. The CBRS spectrum has opened up uh, probably another 50% potential market for us. Uh, you know, for places like Chapel, Nebraska, it's a little, little town, 500 homes full of trees and CBRS spectrum goes right through the trees. Whereas before we could only get to about half the people there. Well, now we've got you know our two busiest access points. One's on CBRS, one's on five gig. They have the same number of customers on it. And that second half of customers, we wouldn't have been able to get to without that spectrum. And we're deploying CBRS equipment like crazy right now. And it's gonna, it's gonna allow fixed wireless to go to a lot more places. Line of sight, trees in the way used to be an issue, not an issue anymore. So uh, takeaway is uh, <clears throat> mountains and boulders beat fiber and uh, trees and leaves beat some spectrum. Um, well, one of the things yeah. that uh, I uh, in encounter talking to folks uh, here in Nebraska frequently, uh, one of the challenges of providing fixed uh, uh, line uh, wireless uh, uh, wireline service uh, is figuring out what the actual service address is you have the address and it doesn't actually correspond to the building that needs coverage, or there might be a house and then a, a, a barn and then the field and they actually cover a 
half a mile, half a square mile or a mile or more of space and figuring out where you actually need service, that measurement and discussion can be uh, tricky. And of course, with uh, fixed wireless, that's less an issue. Um, so uh, just echoing the, uh, some of the uh, uh, data challenges here. This episode is part of the Tech Refactored Technical Series. Please visit unl.ngtc.edu to learn more. We now turn back to our conversation with Matt Larson and David Reed on their work on fixed wireless access in rural Nebraska. Um, our next question is to Brent Scorup, uh, then uh, Angela Holman. Uh, we uh, have uh, Michael, and uh, I do want to ask about uh, Elon Musk. Uh, so uh, we'll put that at the end of the queue. Um, so Brent. Yeah, thank you. And, and thank you, Matt, Matt and David. I uh, really enjoyed the paper. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of fixed wireless and it's, it's kind of this uh, secret, um, the secret solution that I find um, a lot of people don't even know about. And I, I do a lot of broadband policy uh, writing and, and research and get a lot of questions from say state, state lawmakers who, I mean, this is increasingly uh, a priority for them and their constituents. And, and I, I mentioned fixed wireless or WISPs and, and there's often uh, 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 lack of knowledge about that these even exist. And as you know, spend a lot of maturation in the, in the industry, new technologies, new spectrum, uh, consolidation, which I think is, is good. Um, so my question is, when, when I'm thinking about policy solutions, you, you mentioned that um, a big problem for fixed wireless is that they don't have commercial towers in, in the county you, you mentioned. Is public construction or subsidized construction of, of towers a, a way of, of really reducing the cost for fixed wireless in, in these unserved areas or, or, or is it a pretty minor cost uh, to do that sort of thing? Uh, the cost of, of I, I believe the biggest single component in our, our paper beyond, uh, we, the backhaul microwaves are fairly expensive, but the tower construction is also pretty expensive. So I think that's uh, uh, something that would help. Uh, we're not big on having to have stuff that's like single purpose either. In fact, uh, we're on several towers that are owned by counties and the funding for those towers was originally from, I believe, public safety. Uh, so, you know, I, we're very opportunistic if, if, uh, if, but the more the more towers that are available that could be used that would be opened up would help a lot. Um, to be honest, if it's a tower that's got fiber to it, that's even better because I think that's kind of the next step is once we've got coverage everywhere, we put up microwave to get the initial connection up, and then at some point fiber is going to have to feed the tower, you know, and then maybe someday far out in the future we've got fiber to every house. But you know, I, I look at it as this is something that takes you take it stage by stage. So first connect, get connectivity out to everyone and then start putting fiber to your busiest locations. And then you start extending the fiber from there. Uh, but you know, I, the having more towers available definitely would help. Um, and you know, the capital to construct the towers, that's generally, you know, that, that holds a lot of people back 
because I we just started building a few towers on our own, and we we even have something I mentioned in, the, in there these cowboy towers, which you know half the component is the labor it takes to put something up. A cowboy tower is basically one day of labor versus putting up a regular tower is usually seven to ten days worth of labor to to get put up plus permitting plus all the other stuff that goes with it. So. Uh, it would definitely help if there were more towers available. That's a positive thing. And they don't have to be just single purpose for fixed wireless either. Um, that will help, you know, mobile coverage. I think a lot of mobile carriers would be willing to put up uh, the technology to do mobile coverage. Doesn't You don't have to put up a $500,000 tower everywhere that you want to have coverage. So being able to kind of, kind of have some more facilities out there uh, on investment in infrastructure like that, I think is always going to be a good idea. Yeah, if I could just add uh, to what Matt was saying, I think it's a great question, and and I just some I'd tweak it a little bit to say I think it, it's a great idea that uh, worth uh, pursuing to the extent to which it's the the towers are tied into a middle mile strategy, right? That in terms of what what Matt's saying by having the fiber connected, and you need if you can have that fiber connected within some kind of a cohesive middle mile for an area. Like in Colorado here, we have Project Thor, right? And that's connecting middle mile fiber through towns the size of Steamboat and Eagle. So that's not really the same thing that we have here. So it's kind of the next level down uh, for extending fiber out through those kind of community-based projects might might be real useful to to, uh, extend the fiber to those those towers that help to provide the broadband and in, in kind of a co- in, in a planned way, I think that could be really an, an interesting idea. Hey, uh, we are going to uh, Angela. Um, I just had a question. You mentioned firmware upgrades uh, to the new spectrum, which is kind of exciting because otherwise you're looking at equipment upgrades, but then you started talking about CBRS and the equipment needed to facilitate that. So in a fixed wireless, cost model. I was wondering if there shouldn't be um, some sort of allocation for maintenance and potential future upgrades where you might have to replace either backhaul equipment or at the cons- like customer premise uh, to hit those new frequencies and beyond. So just the general rule we've had is we have to rebuild our network about every five years. Now, that doesn't mean it's like, you know, <laughs> we shut everything off and go rebuild the entire thing. It's like a rolling as we go along. And I think what we're finding is we've hit a point here where uh, I think we're going to be good for another. I think the equipment we're putting up is going to get us through seven, somewhere between seven and 10 years, depending on uh, how many customers are in a specific area. So I still have places where we're a couple generations behind as far as like the equipment we've got up. And depending on if there aren't a lot of people on it, then it's going to be capable of delivering what people need. So um, as far as like maintenance costs, we, we have that built in uh, to our economic model that we just assume we're going to get at this point, I think anywhere from five to 10 years worth of life out of the equipment, and then it's going to have to be replaced. But the thing that I like about at least the way we've done it so far is we've been able to do that out of our existing cash flow as opposed to expecting to get a subsidy over and over and over to try and try and uh, rebuild it. Um, unless there's some application that comes along that all of a sudden says we, we have to have gigabit up and down everywhere. Uh, and if there is, then that's going to create much bigger problems than the last mile. 
the middle mile and the core network infrastructure isn't really set up to handle that. So uh, I, I, I think we're, I, I think that fixed wireless is actually set up pretty well to handle that. Uh, even, even compared to like fiber, um, we've got aloe here. Aloe's in Scotts Bluff and has been here since uh, 2005. So we've had fiber a long time before a lot of other places. And I've already seen Aloe have to do multiple upgrades on their fiber network. You know, they've, they've gone through three different network interface devices at our sites. So it's not like fiber doesn't have maintenance costs as well. Uh, you can say the actual fiber itself is future-proof, but the technology on the ends of it is not. So uh, although, yeah, I think there is an upgrade component and a maintenance component for fixed wireless, that's inherent in any ISP service network. So I don't think that there's any particular advantage or disadvantage for fixed wireless versus anything else. And it's a good question, Angela. The, the, the paper, we just looked at the upfront costs and we didn't try to, you know, if we were going to look at a cash flow analysis more in depth, then we would ap absolutely, as Matt's saying, have to include that as a line item. But we, we just, uh, for the scope of the paper, we just kept it up front for, you know, the upfront cost. Michael, question to you. Yeah, thanks. Um, really enjoyed the paper. Uh, my question is related to Sarah's. Um, I was curious about the tipping point uh, where fiber becomes more cost effective again. Um, but I was just curious if you had any results for your Banner County case study. Um, so like your finding is based on a universal service commitment, 100% of households. But I was curious um, if you just roll it back to 95% commitment, does fiber become more cost effective on a um, per megabit uh, basis? All right, so I think there's a little bit of a trick question there. <laughs> so yes, if, if you wanna make the assumption that gigabit is uh, the most important thing is looking at cost, but I would push back with an economic argument that the extra 900 meg you'd see over the 100 has an extremely low marginal value. There is very little marginal utility to uh, the speed from 100 meg to 900 meg. And the upload side of it, uh, there is very little empirical evidence that shows more than two to three percent of users actually need more than actually need symmetrical upload. So, well, if if we want to if we want to frame the existing question, I would say that probably if we drop down to the fifty or sixty percent range, you would have to get down to in that neighborhood for the cost per megabit to start to look anywhere close uh, to comparable between fiber and fixed wireless. But I also push back that the marginal utility of that is very limited. So from a, from a more practical point of view, I would say that uh, you would have to get to the point where you've got pretty high density to justify doing fiber over fixed wireless. And it would probably, you'd start to run into scaling considerations. Now fixed wireless can scale up a long ways um, you know, you can put up more sectors, you can densify, you can do stuff like that. So uh, we successfully compete with fiber in a lot of places and uh, cable and have a very good business model that works with that. And that is at its core driven by customers that are satisfied with the service that they're getting. So I would just push back on that as far as like the, the density size. If you wanted to come up with a density number, you know, I would say if we drop down to like 40 or 50% of households in the county, if you took the 40 or 50%, that would be the, the lowest cost to serve. 
then you might come to a point where the uh, cost per megabit would actually make sense. It, it, so again, this is a, a couple interesting policy aspects to this. And Matt's answer at the end there is then that you know those those households probably already have pretty robust broadband available to them as well, right? And so it, you know we're looking at, at apples and oranges comparison there. But here, here's the beauty of of at least as I, as I interpret what the FCC is doing in terms of their uh, their funding through the through RDOF and uh, prior with the CAF, CAFE uh, phase two, it doesn't matter in the sense they're using reverse auctions and they're designing those auctions. They're specifying basically uh, some speeds that they will weight the function, you know, in terms of how they weight the bids. Um, and and they, they prefer one gigabit per second, but it's got a certain weighting of the preference of that. Same thing with the data allowance and a latency, right? And, and so um, that's, I, I love that approach that it tries to, to adhere to the principle of technological neutrality so that, you know, a fixed wireless, they know what they can do at a particular speed and cost. And when, when you're focused, what, what our, the results of our study indicate is when you're really focused on this long tail of trying to connect these last few households, it's unlikely that it, through a reverse auction, you would get a fiber of the home solution, right? It's unless there is, you know, it'd be an interesting research and analysis to look at the weightings that are being <laughs> provided by the FCC in terms of, uh, you know, the preference that they're showing for one gigabit. And that would, would maybe have a, you know, an interesting answer is when the trade-off given our cost estimates that fiber of the home would win an auction, right? Uh, but you know, you, we, we did calculate uh, based on Banner County since in the CAFE 2 um, auction that there was a winner there. With the support, we could calculate how much more support you would need uh, in the county to support fiber of the home. And it was you know, order of magnitude more, right? And so um, the good news is the way this is structured, it's very interesting. An interesting um, development here that someone here might know the answer better than I do, but I think it's worth researching some is the next fund that they teed up after RDOF is the 5G fund. That's specifically saying you gotta use 5G. And while today, 5G is clearly where the mobile standards have coalesced around. You are starting to see um, other, other technologies being used like Wi-Fi um, in order to support calling. And theoretically, you might in the long run get a different standard, right? And so um, are, is the focus there on uh, just 5G uh, technology uh, uh, in, in the long run good or not? When I talk with Matt, he, um, one of the options that fixed wireless can consider is LTE, right? But typically, the, all the infrastructure associated with LTE, the core routing infrastructure to be able to support mobility, makes that a higher cost that it's not very commonly deployed in fixed wireless access. I don't know if you, you know, you do see like AT&T do it, right, Matt? But I don't know. If other who else is 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 deploying LTE technology, so down the road here with this 5G fund, it's it's interesting with the the technology neutrality question 
of that approach. So. Yeah, I uh, uh, will hop in uh, both because I have a question, we're running low on time and I selfishly want to make sure I ask my question, but also uh, on, on the 5G fund, uh, the 5G uh, fund NPRM did expressly note for uh, the final phase of it, which was targeted towards uh, connecting the highest cost uh, sites uh, and specifically called out farms, ranches and the like, uh, that uh, other advanced uh, wireless technologies were in the consideration. Oh, okay. um, I don't know, uh, uh, I've frankly tried to find it and the language has changed in uh, the, the order that was uh, uh, voted on at the last uh, uh, committee, I guess, not yesterday's, but the previous uh, commission uh, meeting. I don't know if they preserve that language, but at least for those last ultra high cost uh, areas, um, uh, they were open to, or they were considering other technologies in that 5G mix. What that actually means, not sure, but uh, I'm, I'm working with a, a research group here at the university who's developing non-5G technologies to connect these rural sites. So we're, we're keenly interested in this. But the, the question that I uh, have, I, I love this paper, um, uh, the, the economics of fixed wireless versus fiber to the home and other uh, uh, technologies is really important. Um, and uh, this is a unfair question in many ways because the answer is I don't know, but uh, I'll, I'll ask this Matt in the least polite way possible. Um, is Elon Musk going to eat your lunch? Is Starlink going to put everyone uh, out of business? Bring it on, man. <laughs> I literally have, uh, since we started, we have had everybody coming at us. And one thing I can say about most of the fixed wireless operators, yeah, I used to say we were kind of like cockroaches because it seemed like the incumbents and phone companies, everybody wanted to stomp us out and we've still survived. And now we're more like piranhas. I think we're, we're taking huge market share away from uh, a lot of ILEX, like for example, CenturyLink in my county is down below 15% penetration. We actually have higher penetration than the ILEC at this point in some of the counties that we serve. Um, I think that what Elon's trying to do is he's trying to launch more rockets. And so he came up with a plan to launch a lot of satellites that takes a lot of, lot of rockets to get critical mass up for SpaceX. As far as performance and how their network is going to work, on if, if they build a satellite network that's capable of delivering the same kind of uh, broadband experience that a terrestrial network will, they will be the very first one. And we've seen satellite networks up to this point have not been able to scale up. Uh, once you put a lot of users on them, they tend to have a very poor user experience. I know it's a new design. I know that it's low earth orbit and is designed for low latency, but there are a zillion variables out there that need to be considered to try and make something like that work. I wouldn't put it past Elon Musk that he could figure out a way to come up with something that works, but there has to be an economic model that is uh, sustainable and makes sense to go along with it. And we have, I know fixed wireless operators have a very, uh, well-proven economic model that works, we're survivable, we've been able to grow and continue to provide the service that people want. As long as we're delivering, the, as long as you're delivering the service that people want, people are not going to switch. Where I think SpaceX is going to do really well, there are still a lot of places in North America and all around the world where there's no infrastructure 
and they have the same issues with right-of-way and permitting and issues with local vandalism and you should hear the deals I, I i'm friends with somebody that runs a cell carrier in haiti and you should hear the deals they have to make with warlords to like get the diesel to their generators and stuff like that things we don't think about here that's where something like spacex has a tremendous advantage you know this unique advantage that somebody could go in and put a starlink up in the middle of their fortified compound or whatever and get internet service or you can put it on top of a on top of a mud hut somewhere and get internet. That's a that's the biggest advantage where satellite should be focused on, not trying to not trying to get customers in rural areas. I mean, customers in rural areas, great. There's people we can't get to. Now I'm all about, I started this because I wanted people to be, at, be able to get good service. Am I scared of Elon? Not really. I, I think that uh, if anything, uh, it's gonna generate more interest and in rural areas that people can feel like they can go to a rural area and live and work and do what they want to do, especially the pandemic. I think we have seen an influx of people move into our area because we have really good broadband connectivity. I think if nothing else, uh, the idea that SpaceX is going to be there as kind of the, the last available choice that you can get decent broadband, I think that's helpful to everybody. But take it, eat my lunch, man, I'm, I'm going to fight you. I'm hungry. I want my lunch. I'm gonna, we're gonna duke it out, Elon, if that's what it's gonna come down to. I've been your host, Gus Hurwitz. Thank you for wading shoulder deep into the prairie grass with us today as we've gotten into the technical nitty gritty in this episode of Tech Refactored Double Plus. If you want to learn more about what we're doing here at NGTC, you can go to our website at ngtc.unl.edu or you can follow us on Twitter at unl underscore ngtc. You can listen to or download our podcast on our website or find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. This podcast is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The Nebraska Governance and Technology Center is a partnership led by the Nebraska College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska. Colin McCarthy produced and recorded our theme music Casey Richter provided technical assistance and advice. Elspeth Magilton is our executive producer, and Lysandra Marquez is our associate producer. Yeah.